Welcome to another episode of the Strive for 25 podcast, where our team is helping people build their financial freedom. And one of the things we talk a lot about is saving and investing 25% of one's income. And I'm your host, Joel Farrell. And each week we dig into the ways that people are generating more income to be able to save more money and the ways that they are investing that hard-earned dollar. And lastly, the how, how people are making these changes. Because again, we're talking about changes. We're talking about changing behaviors. Let's get into today's content so we can help you on your financial journey towards living a life with the power of choice. Welcome to another episode of the Strive for 25 podcast. And I'm looking forward to today's guest, the Cashflow Guy. You can find him on Twitter. Um, and he is a real estate investor, has a W-2 job as well, and kind of really fits uh, what we talk about a lot here on the channel. And it's the, hey, how does the everyday person build wealth and uh, march towards financial freedom? So Cashflow Guy, uh, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, give us a little, a little bit of background on, on uh, who you are and what you do. Sure. Well, thanks so much, Joel, for having me on. Just wanted to say that first. Uh, it's a really interesting topic, you know, getting enough money to be able to invest in real estate. I know a lot of what I hear on Twitter is, you know, first step, daddy's money, right? Have an inheritance. And that's one way to do it. Um, but I do think, you know, there's a lot of ways for your everyday person to get there. Um, so we can dive into, you know, what's worked for me. Um, I'm definitely not where I want to be yet, but I'm definitely making good strides as well. So hopefully, you know, whoever's listening to this can find some useful tidbits and tidbits that can be applied to their situation. Um, so yeah, a little bit about myself. I'm a CPA. Uh, so during the day, I'm in technical accounting. I do that for a fintech startup. Um, so people call us the lawyers of accounting. Basically, you know, why are we accounting for this transaction the way we are? right? Using guidance to document that. So I'm a pretty analytical person, um, both legally, you know, able to read contracts, uh, but then also, you know, with the quantitative side of things. Um, so I do that. I'm obviously growing the cash flow guy on Twitter, been creating, sharing content there for coming up on a year now. And that's been amazing. You know, met a lot of cool folks and just been learning a lot on that platform. I sell plastic spice jars on Amazon. Uh, I'm probably the least passionate about that of any side hustles. It's, you know, I think it's great experience and I'm getting close to profitability, which will be a nice milestone for me. Um, but I think that was just something, you know, I wanted to do before I really had enough money to do real estate, but real estate really gets me going much more. Um, and then, yeah, so my primary side hustle for now, I hope, you know, it'll be my full-time hustle one day is real estate. So we own one rental. Uh, we have the body of a second rental. We can get into that later. Just need to do a little bit of renovation. And uh, yeah, I got a lot of projects on the docket and starting to get to a point where we'll have kind of a, a capital snowball to be able to do more. Um, and we can talk about that more in a little bit as well. But yeah, that's that's me in a nutshell. So for our listeners out there, so you know, we have an individual here who's got a full-time job, CPA, um, a couple other things he's, he's into, real estate. And you're in your mid-20s, right? 27, I think you said? 27. So how old were you when you got into the game? What, 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 how, uh, what, what age were you at on, on the first property? So the first property 
we started building it when I was 24 um, and we moved in because we built our first property and then we moved in and it was kind of ready to go when I was 25. That's when we closed on it. Okay. Uh, From a down payment perspective, just from, you know, for people out there, did you do 5% down? What type of loan did you do? And and what type of down payment did you have ready to go on that first property? Yeah. So we did a 15 year conventional. So that was, we moved from the Bay area, right? I was living in Oakland, which is pretty high cost of living to Colorado Springs. So it was definitely, you know, the, the landscape there for real estate was more affordable for us. So we were able to do 20% and uh, for the down payment. And we did a 15 year conventional loan. Um, the payment wasn't astronomically more. Um, and for us, we really believe in the Colorado Springs market because, you know, when remote work hit, all these people were moving from places like the Bay Area and New York and Chicago, right, to places like Austin and Denver and Colorado Springs. So what happened was all the prices in Denver went up right? That priced out a lot of the locals there. A lot of the locals were moving down to Colorado Springs. So you're seeing this explosive growth in Colorado Springs. So the 15 year play there is, you know, even though I am the cash flow guy, I do like equity plays as well. Um, So that's an equity play, right? Throw a few hundred more. I think it was like 900 a month. And then when we're, I'm 40, my girlfriend will be 39. Um, we'll have a hundred percent ownership of that property. So we're going to kind of dig into the full kind of scope of the journey. And cause right now you're currently in San Diego, California, Yes, you own a house there. (laughs) Uh, and the rental part project part, you, you got a property as an an ADU. So we'll dig into all that stuff in a second, but, um, you know, right, right now, the reason why I wanted to kind of point out the age is that the average age of a first time home buyer right now, based on the data that came out from national Association of Realtors earlier this year, the first time homebuyer age average is 35 or 36. And so mm-hmm. to me, it's like, hey, I'm, I'm, I just turned 40 this year. And I know from a real estate standpoint, like I've had this whole crazy winding journey that's got me to where I'm at, but I got in the game in my late 20s. And so having that time to be able to have things work for you and figure things out and whatever. And you're getting in the game at obviously a much you know uh, lower age than the 30, 30, the 36 average. So going into it, why was it important for you to do it? And and from a cash flow perspective, you know, why do a 15 year and how did you kind of analyze the data? Um, and, and why did you do that? Sure. So I think the why for me was largely when I got into my first job, it was in public accounting, you know, a CPA firm. Um, and I think you and I have discussed this in the past as well. Yep. You know, I got in and I was very ambitious in the beginning, right? I was like, okay, I'm going to stay at this firm for my whole career coming out of college. You know, they pump you up with all these ideas. I'm going to stay at this firm for my whole career and I'm going to get promoted over and over and be a partner and make all this money and have like a high stature in the CPA you know, ecosystem. Um, So those are my set of goals coming out of college. So I got there and I looked up and I saw partners working a ton, right? What didn't feel like they had made it. Like I know they're getting massive paychecks and they have equity in the partnership. Um, But I was hearing stories like they were missing their kids' birthdays and 
they, you know, were sleeping four hours and they don't work out anymore. And, 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 and it became pretty clear to me really fast. That was not the end game I wanted for my life. Um, and I'm sure this story is somewhat cliche, right? A lot of people have gone through the same thought process. So pretty quickly, I realized, you know, there's got to be a better way, right? I, I do want wealth. That's important to me, but I'm not going to do it through selling myself for like 80 hours a week forever. Um, just didn't seem to make sense. So it was hard for me to do too much of that job because it was so demanding. Um, so we had started to build the house while I was at that job, but then I quickly changed jobs to one that offered a lot more flexibility, less hours. And that's when I was really able to start pouring time into researching real estate, going on bigger pockets, getting on Twitter, you know, really setting up my sources of information. Um, and, you know, I was calling people when I could, calling lenders, calling investors, whatever I could get my hands on, right? And it's it's interesting because you accumulate knowledge, right? And then all these people are telling you, okay, you just have to take the leap, right? You have to actually get your hands dirty. So I was like getting increasingly impatient to gain real life experience, but obviously real estate costs money. So I was saving. And the thing is when you build, right, you can start building and not have the money yet. And I'm going to repeat that. You can start building and not have the money yet. I don't know if that's obvious to everyone, but to us, that was huge, right? Because you benefit from the appreciation during the build process. In our case, I was 14 months. Uh, our home appreciated 29%. And we had not made our down payment. You have to put down earnest money, it's 3.5% out of 20%, right? So it's kind of a drop in the bucket and you get to ride the ride without paying admission. So I just thought that was crazy. So we didn't have the full down payment yet. We had most of it and we made a plan where we knew we could save it by the end of the 14 months. Um, so that was a big way for me to feel like I was getting in the game, right? And starting to get experience uh, before I was fully ready to you know, make a real down payment. Um, and then, so to your question about the 15% versus the 30%, um, I have a good amount of experience, you know, building forecasts, building financial models. So I guess the mechanics came somewhat naturally. Um, but, you know, at the core, it wasn't too complicated. I basically created amortization schedules and there's tools on the internet for this, right? You put in the value of the home, the amount of years, your estimated interest rate, and it'll spit out a full table of your payments for the 15 years or 30 years. And I looked and the payments were about $900, $2,000 different. I spoke with the lenders about it. Um, and then, you know, I didn't get too fancy at that point. I was earlier in my career with, you know, IRR and all these, you know, fancier financial metrics, but I looked at it and just said, you know, both of these are in a very safe uh, kind of bracket of payments for our income. Right. Neither of them are going to be over a third of our income or over a half or make us unable to save or invest more. They're both kind of in the safe zone. Um, obviously, the 30 year was easier for us, but the 15 year was very doable for us. Um, and then, you know, if nothing else, no other investments, right? By the time we're 40, I looked at the rent, 
at the time it was like I think 32 3300 is what I would estimate for that house and multiplied it by three percent every year for 15 years and I forget what the exact number was but it came out to I don't know much more than 3200 I want to say 5500 something like that um so let's say 5500 right so then if it's 5500 a month you don't have a payment you're paying some insurance, some taxes. Let's say that brings it down to five grand times 12 months. That's 60 grand, right? That's a, that's a salary. It's not a full salary that could cover all of our expenses, but that's a salary. And it's a, a very meaningful, you know, contribution to financial independence. So we felt like we could just do that at a minimum, lock it in. We're in a good spot. And then obviously, you know, add a few other things to that. So that's our foundational investment kind of for the rest of our journey. Got it. Yeah. There's a lot to really kind of dig into that. Um, me coming from, coming from the lending background, I, I have some questions for you. Um, yeah. From a, a standpoint of the rents and your, and your 15 year payment. So closing the property, the rents there, you say maybe 32 to 3,300. So is your payment higher or lower than that, that rent level projection just in, just in theory? So our payment when we started was 32 and change. Uh, I think it's taken a little hike since then because of taxes. Now it's 33 and change. Um, gotcha. And and when we actually rented it, which is you know a couple of years later than the time period we were talking about, we're getting 3,600 now. Gotcha. So yeah. So at that point in time, you know, you mentioned the thousand dollars or so, maybe give or take difference between the 30 year payment and then the 15 year payment. So you take on the higher forced payment. And then do you remember what the interest rate difference was uh, between a 30 and a 15? You don't, if, yeah. if you want to say the interest rate, that's cool. It's, you don't have to. No, no, it, it was a, a little bit lower. Um, don't quote me on this, but if memory serves, I think it brought us down from 3.625. Uh, and this was March of 2022 to 3.5. One two five. Oh, excuse me. This is not March of 2022 because we did a rate lock. Um, I think we locked in June of 21. Gotcha. So we would have locked earlier, but then we had construction delays and you needed like a certain amount of progress before you could lock. So that was actually brutal. We would have been in the twos, but then it was too cold. They couldn't pour foundation and it was frustrating. But um, but yeah, so half half a percent difference, which is meaningful for sure. Yeah, none of that, that makes sense. I mean, I think from from my perspective, typically it's like a, a quarter percent difference on as a rule of thumb between 30 and 15, but then obviously markets are always in, in, in flux and can change. And so that makes sense. Yeah. So at that point in time, rates are you know, pretty much all historical lows. But one of the things I always say is that three and a quarter on a 30-year fix is kind of like that historical low, that Rates hit there in 2012 and 2013 and even in 2016. And so for rates to go below that level, um, which we did see rates in the twos, you know, um, that all happened because of, of COVID and the, the, the chaos and the, you know, all the things that are happening in the markets. But, okay, so at that point in time, you know, I, I wanted to hit on that because I also want to kind of address that also with the current environment right now in terms of people deciding to continue to get in the game to the next one or, or getting in the game as a first property. So um, great. So I call this the stair step on meter uh, stair step method on meter um, that that's, that's a 10 out of 10 
on the stair step, I'm at the meter uh, rating because if your payments 2,200 on a 30 year fix and your rents projected rents are in the 3000 range, that's a great, great uh, place to be in terms of uh, buying a house with the intent that down the road, it could be a rental. So on the build process, you, you mentioned having that time frame and then switching jobs and working remotely. So the job that you were working at that had more of the craziness in terms of the hours and the commitment was that that were you working at that job when you decided to to build in Colorado Springs or switch? Did you yes. already switch? No, not yet. Um, so we did, I guess, about seven months of the build process while I was at that job. Cool. All the while, you knew that maybe there's maybe a, a different opportunity out there. Yeah. Yeah, I knew uh, it was kind of a matter of time. Just needed the right opportunity to come along. Cool. And then, so you get to you get to Colorado Springs. You're how how long are you there? Um, in that house, how long did you live there? So we moved there in March of twenty two, and we were there through June of twenty twenty three. Um, okay. so fifteen months. Um, and I think something to highlight there. You know, you get the best terms from a financing perspective if it's your primary residence, right? Rates are lower. You're also able to make smaller down payments. And I think a lot of people only like utilize that fact once because they feel like buying a home puts roots down and there's inertia and you don't want to move. And trust me, I understand it. I hate moving as much as anyone else. But I think a really beneficial strategy to maximize your capital early on is to <clears throat> move a few times and get the primary residence terms multiple times over. And then you have your primary residence conventional loan, right, against rental rates. And that's where you can actually cash flow from rentals. Um, so, you know, when we were moving to Colorado Springs, a lot of people were saying to me, oh, you don't know anyone there. And that's a random place, right? We were moving from California and, you know, all these things are going to be committed, right? And we kind of knew the whole time, like, you know, we didn't know exactly how long it would be, but we didn't feel like we were putting down roots, right? We felt like, you know, we'll do a stint here. If we like it more, we'll last longer. We'll see, you know, how much we're able to save, you know, if we get raises, whatever. Ultimately, we do want to buy something else. We don't know if it'll be in the same place. Um, but I think looking at it with, you know, a flexibility or a willingness to adapt, I guess, um, is really helpful to, you know, be able to get those friendlier terms on future properties. Yeah. And I, I kind of want to come back to that, uh, in a, in a second. Um, but I kind of, let's complete the kind of transition to San Diego. So what was going on sure. uh, with that move and why, and, and, uh, how about all fit together? Moved to San Diego. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think ultimately we determined Colorado Springs was not for us. Um, just culturally, it was a little different. We didn't have any family or friends out there. Um, the reason we actually determined this was because I was going to buy a dry cleaner, right? I'm always looking into different deals and getting excited about things. Um, so I was going to buy a dry cleaner. And I had built a forecast for that and the real profitability, right? Where it started to look really appealing was in years four and five. 
Um, so I sat down with my girlfriend and said, you know, are we going to be here for five years? Does that seem realistic? And that's when we really thought about it and thought about, you know, this is going to be the rest of our 20s, right? Does it make sense? Um, and that's when we kind of realized, like, okay, we do want to get to San Diego kind of soon. So me being me, I started just compulsively researching San Diego, right? Looking into real estate trends. I started calling people, reading about it. Um, and, you know, people have been predicting a doomsday in the economy for what feels like a long time now, right? It, it's yeah. happened a little here and there, not like this big drop that, you know, everyone's been expecting. Um, but in early 2023, prices did come down a little. That was kind of the closest to that drop I think we've seen in terms of a housing price perspective. So San Diego is one of the pandemic, you know, darling markets, if you will. Um, not like Austin and Phoenix and Boise and these markets that absolutely skyrocketed, but it did pretty well. So I think there's a bit of a correction there. So we saw prices coming down in early 2023. And, you know, I'm not one to try to time the market, but that said, I can't completely ignore, you know, patterns yeah. as well. It's it's something that's somewhere in the middle. Um, so we saw that we saw there's pretty limited inventory and then prices started to come back up as well. Um, and I don't care that much about rates, right? We're, we got into a high rate situation here, but I think that if you can make the payment with the high rate, it's a matter of time, right? It might be two years. It might be five till we can refinance. And we've got these other projects that, you know, I know you and I will get to in a little bit. And I think those will help out with the payments as well. Yeah. So we weren't too worried about the rates. So yeah, it was kind of those two things, right? But from a lifestyle perspective, we wanted to come here. We have family and friends here. We were kind of ready to move out of Colorado Springs. And we felt like the market was in a good enough place where it could make sense. And I guess the last note I'll have there is like, I really believe in being a contrarian when it comes to investing. Um, there's always always this notion of like well why are you buying when the market's about to crash right no one's buying right now the the volume of sales transactions is lower than it's been you know and to me staying with the grain means that even if you win you can't win that like profoundly right because if everyone's doing it there's just not that much of the pie left for you so i always believe not just you know blindly doing the opposite of what everyone else is doing, but in an educated and informed manner, trying to find opportunities that do go against the grain a bit. And so this kind of hit that criterion for me as well, where I know a lot of people who are waiting and not buying largely because of interest rates. Um, so that was appealing to me too. Yeah. And that's something that personally, I, I hear that same thing a lot. Like, Hey, I'm going to wait till rates go down and you know, I have my own thoughts and opinions on what that means if rates go down by a percent at whatever point in time. Um, but with with that journey that we were talking about and, you know, buying something as a primary residence a couple of different times, maybe you really relocate, maybe you don't, but buying the next one as a primary residence and having the ability to put some some lower down payments down if you need to. Um, you know, we call that the stair step method, being able to kind of scale in. And, you know, 
the have you mentioned you know flexibility to pick up your your world and move to find an opportunity um and then you just talked about being contrarian right i mean the the people that are in your circles whether it be coworkers or from afar or friends or family you know how do you think most people are looking at that kind of if you're in your 20s or 30s and picking your life up to to find an opportunity for real estate or whatever maybe what what's the typical type of response on that well, I think a lot of the people that I speak with, one of the reasons they don't want to buy real estate is because they're not ready to commit to a place yet, right? They feel like, oh, maybe I want to go and live in New York for a couple of years, right? I'm I'm single, I can do whatever, maybe I'll live in Europe, right? And they have like these ideas of, you know, what if, what if, and buying a house to them stifles that, Um and it kind of limits their ability to try new things and go in new places. Um, and, you know, it's a little true to a degree, right? Because you can't just sell whenever. It depends on the market and taxes and all this kind of stuff. But to me, you can rent for the most part whenever. Um, there's a little risk there, right? You could go to rent and rents have come down in your area such that now it's a negative cash flow situation. Um, but for the most part, you can move and rent, um, and you can access the equity through all these different ways, right? Cash out, refinance, C-lock, all these kinds of things. Um, so yeah, I think that's the general viewpoint I hear is like, you gotta be ready to settle if you're going to buy a house. And I just fundamentally reject that. I don't think that's true. Yeah, I'm I'm on the same page for sure with the way I look at things. Um, staying kind of going back to the very beginning of the process, you mentioned research and talking to different uh, specialists and kind of the industry and whatnot. What are some of the things that you that you've learned throughout the process that you think are are important for someone to be aware of in, in terms of home buying, lending terminology? Um, you you mentioned buying as a primary residence is one example, but what what other things come to mind that you think would be important for someone to be aware of so i'll say a lot of it's like specific to my situation um, but i guess you know that's the experience from which i'm speaking so a lot of it's related to san diego specifically um the adu laws here i think are pretty unique um and you know what's in code what people are doing with construction contractors um you know, there's different rules, like you're, depending on the zoning, you're not allowed to have living space cover more than 59% of the lot, right? So we're looking at bigger lots and always saying, okay, well, we want to do, for this property, it needs, you know, a new primary suite, it needs a detached ADU, right? This is kind of our road to cash flow, our road to refinancing and having a friendly payment. And then, okay, if it's this big and the house is this many square footage, and I kind of like internalize the 59% rule, right? So then when I see a deal on Zillow, I immediately see, okay, the lot's 6,200, the house is, you know, 2,000, I do this and this, and oh yeah, you know, we could totally make this work. And, you know, just getting in the reps, um, I think is helpful there. Um, and then with lending, you know, is the different types of lending really, because we were looking at, so for this prop, property in San Diego, we were not looking at um, 
a 20% down payment, right? We were looking at either doing an FHA loan uh, where the down payment would be 5% or a conventional where the down payment would be three and a half. Um, and there's different maximums there. I think those change by locale. Um, but I think it was around 1.05 uh, million for conventional. Maybe that was FHA. I'm forgetting the numbers right now. It's been a few months, as you can tell. Yeah. Um, but at the at the time, you know, I had internalized that. And, you know, what does that mean? Okay, FHA, you have to live here for a year, right? And there's, you know, a couple of requirements there as well. So I think it was just understanding that. Oh, and then, okay, see, now, now my memory is getting jogged. Another big piece of it was offers, how to make offers. Um, we were fortunate to find a terrific real estate agent. I found him on Bigger Pockets. He had all these reviews. If you ever listen to the Bigger Pockets podcast, David Green talks about finding an agent who's also an investor, right? Because they're going to understand your perspective. Um, and at the same time, you know, showing them that you can be a true partner, not a one and done first time home buyer. So I shared with him my visions of, you know, building a real estate portfolio in San Diego and finding someone to do multiple transactions with. And I think that, you know, resonated with him. Um, so, you know, we had a great relationship. So he had kind of a team, a lender, title company, inspector, all the right people where we could make offers with a nine day close. Um, and that was a pretty big differentiator because right now how the market is, is supply is super low, right? So even though there's not a ton of demand, the supply is so low that the demand is still amplified for each property. And there's still a lot of competition. Um, so when you go to make these offers, first of all, there's a lot of flippers that waive all contingencies, right? And they don't care if there's a foundation issue, whatever, they're expecting to blow six figures in construction. So that's hard to compete with because um, we're not there, right? We can't deal with a massive you know, infrastructure issue under the hood. So what we were able to do is offer this nine day close, which was faster than anyone else making offers um we included the loan contingency or excuse me we waived the loan contingency and then initially we included the appraisal contingency uh, but ultimately ended up waiving that too um and we waived the appraisal contingency uh even if there is a huge appraisal gap i think we would have just called out something in the inspection and kind of used that to back out from the transaction um, but yeah, we tried to target, um, properties where we didn't think there would be too big of a gap between the purchase price and the appraised value, uh, because, you know, then you're on the hook for that gap and it's cash that doesn't go to equity kind of just disappears in value. Um, and then luckily for this home, it actually appraised dollar for dollar, the exact purchase price, um, which I think is a little shady, but obviously it's good for us because um, we didn't have to pay any additional cash out of pocket. So that was a win. What was the offer price above or below or at the listing price, the list price? It was at the second listing pricing. So, so the sellers listed 
Uh, I think it was like eight sixty-five, something like that. Um, so our initial offer was nine hundred because there's a lot of competition, right? And then they selected us and a few others to do a best and final offer. And they shared, you know, some numbers were above us, no contingencies. So then we offered 925. They selected someone else's offer, not us. So we missed out on this. So then we were making offers on other properties. And then they came back to us and said, hey, you know, that deal fell through. We're starting completely over, doing a whole new open house. And we were like, do you just like, you know, want us to bump up our numbers a little? Because we felt... Like there's a ton of potential. We could do all these projects. 10, 20 grand is not going to, um, it's not really going to make an impact long-term, especially, you know, with the leverage we're making fibers and down payment. It's not that much cash out of our pocket. Um, so, <clears throat> so ultimately, oh, and I'm going to reverse a statement earlier. I think FHA was 3.5, conventional is five. Now that I'm thinking about it. Um, I, I, I wasn't going to call it out. So it's, it's all Okay. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Um, Cause yeah, we're at, we're at five. So anyway, so what happened is then we went to the new open house virtually from Colorado and then we made an offer for nine thirty-five, which was the new asking the second time around. Um, and then it was so weird. The seller said, all right, we're going to collect offers through Wednesday night. This was on Sunday. We made the offer through Wednesday night that we're going to evaluate and pick the best offer. And then Monday, like afternoon, she calls our agent and just says like, you guys have been here the whole time. You've been following up with us. You know, you seem transparent and like, you're going to really close and we need this to close after it's fallen through once. So we're just going to select your offer and not even wait for these other offers to come in. Um, and that was a really cool moment because, you know, I, I got to give the credit to our agent. Um, he had been just following up and putting in FaceTime whenever he could. And uh, yeah, so I don't know if another offer would have come in that was higher than ours. Probably, you know, it's a nice property. Everything's super competitive, but yeah, we got it right at asking just because of kind of how that situation developed. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of good agents and good lenders and there's a lot of people that aren't as polished or experienced to know or buttons, what buttons to press or what conversations to have at what times and, you know, having mm -hmm. a good team, you know, that's been together and know, knows how each other work. Cause as a lender, it's like, okay, having a relationship with your realtor and know how they do things and where I need to kind of jump in and, and have a conversation with a listing agent to help, you know, maybe, um, create that strength of, uh, that sense of strength of the offer to the listing agent to help your buyer. Like all those little bit of things matter. So having a good team is important for sure. Um, the the ADU, so building that additional unit onto the property and looking at the different square footages and the percentages. So th this property did not have one and your plan was to, to build it from scratch. Is that right? So yes and no. So this property has a converted garage. Um, that's a one bed, one bath unit, but it was marketed as being up to code and done by licensed contractors. So we were planning to rent it pretty soon after getting here. Um, we've actually found that there's some issues with the construction. So we're getting quotes right now. Um, we might be able to 
kind of go back to the seller and say, hey, you know, you claimed this, you didn't disclose the true nature. Um, and the seller, like the seller was her own real estate agent. She's a, that's her full-time occupation. So she has some kind of reputation to protect there. So she seemed willing to, uh, you know, collaborate with us. And she's claiming she didn't know. Um, but anyway, that's besides the point. So once we get that ADU up and running, that's ADU one. It's it's technically a junior ADU because it's attached and it's smaller. Um, and then the backyard, we're going to create a detached ADU. Um, the backyard has a a hill towards the back, right? So there's maybe for like the back 14 feet or something, there's this incline of dirt with some plants on it. So we're going to remove all that and put in a retaining wall and it's going to really open up the yard. Um, and that's what's going to allow us to put a detached ADU uh, in the backyard there. And that ADU can be up to 1,200 square feet as long as it meets the different offset requirements from the back, the side, and the main house itself. Um, I think I've heard that the permitting is much more timely or it takes longer and is much more costly if it's 750 square feet or higher. Uh, so a lot of people offer these designs for 740 square feet and you can squeeze two or three bedrooms. You know, they're not huge bedrooms, but you can get that into a 740 square foot unit. So I think that's probably what we're going to end up doing there. That makes sense. And, and from our rental standpoint, once that's completed, what do you project the rents to 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 come in for that one? And then, and then that also means you get to keep the garage space too? Yeah, so the garage space, we're thinking about doing a short-term rental. Um, so obviously it's a little harder to project that. But if we were to do a long-term rental, I think we could get about 2000 a month from the one bed, one bath. Um, San Diego rents are super expensive. I actually just saw an article that they surpassed San Francisco rents for the first wow. time in a while. So they're like, it's the third highest rental market in the country. Um, they out outpaced inflation and all this stuff. So that's kind of wild. Um, so yeah, so I think 2000 for the one bed, one bath. And then for the detached ADU, if it's a two bed, I think we could expect around 3000 It was a three bed, probably like 3600 something like that so that'll obviously you know make a, a major dent into your just normal mortgage payment which then allows you to save more money and then if for whatever reason life changes and you exit the property and go on to the next one and you're renting out all three units then you're going to be exceeding your expenses correct yeah if, if if we get to a place where we're able to rent all three and we move out it would be pretty significantly cash flow positive. Um, it's hard to say because you know the ADU doesn't exist yet, so I don't know exactly where it's going to be. And yeah. we're, excuse me, we're doing an addition to the main house, and I don't know what that's exactly going to look like yet. But I think the main house will be a three bed, two bath after the addition, um, and we'll have a new you know landscaping and everything. So I think the main house can probably rent for around four thousand um today so if you have the four thousand two thousand and we'll say three thousand right for the two bed two bath that's 
9,000 total. Um, and yeah, our mortgage payment is kind of between seven and 8,000 right now. Um, so it would be not a full salary, but um, it'd be a nice chunk of change for sure. That's awesome. And, and, and kind of cost per square footage, I mean, what, what kind of numbers are you projecting for the uh, the addition or total dollar amount for the addition? What does that look like? So we're still getting quotes right now. Um, it, it's my first time, you know, dealing with contractors and going through the quote process with them. They're a little, uh, it's, it's different than dealing with accountants. Um, so yeah. I think I'm figuring out, you know, how to communicate with them. Um, but I'm hearing anything from 250 to about 375 per square foot. Um, so, and there's different types of financing there. I'm learning about that right now. Um, there's a 203K program, which is also an FHA program. Um, and then there's also, I think it's called a home style, like Fannie Mae home style, mm -hmm. forgetting the name. And that allows you to, take the cost of construction and add it into your mortgage. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's like some shorter term financing and all this kind of stuff. So it's uh, and a lot of the contractors, you know, especially the ones with bigger companies come with kind of financing brochures. So they have their own options as well. Um, some of them have actually told me to contact my lender for the house saying that lenders for the house want you to kind of succeed with the property and, want to stick with you so if you have an existing loan with them there could be a bundling opportunity to see you know what they have available as well um i haven't done that yet but i fully intend to that's awesome i mean that none of this would, would have been possible if you just went out and got a regular single family house and bought it right the, all, all this stuff is by just pure research and and not stopping until you find the answer sounds like it sounds like yeah no i think that's an accurate statement. I, I want to kind of go in a little bit of a different direction. Um, you know, yeah. we we're talking about real estate, you know, we we're both on the same page. It's, it's a pathway for the everyday person to be able to build wealth and march towards financial freedom um, and get and getting your time back and not having to rely on, you know, a job, you know, clocking in and clocking out, so to speak. So the social media side of things and Twitter, um, what, what, where can people find you on Twitter? What's your, what's your handle? My handle is the cash flow guy. I think it's more specifically the space cash space flow underscore guy. <clears throat> and uh, what's your what's your thought process or what's your what's your goal um, with that platform? Um, my goal right now is really to just connect with people. I mean, I met you on Twitter, right? I've I've met several people who. Um, well, let, let me take a step back. I believe really heavily in your sphere of influence, right? Things like who you spend, the five people you spend the most time with, you know, you're an average of them, right? I've heard that. I don't know if that's completely true. Um, but also, you know, you're kind of a composite of like your choices and your experiences and what you learn. So if you're just exposing yourself to misinformation or negative vibes or people who are complacent and not growing, Right, I do tend to think you kind of flow in those directions, right? There's a current pulling you there. Um, so when it comes to real estate investing and growing and financial independence, you know, my immediate circle 
is not really doing it. Uh, I think they might in the future, but at our current age, they don't feel the urgency, I think, um, which is okay. You know, I'm not here to to bash on anyone. And I, you know, I love my friends and family, but I wasn't getting that element of the sphere of influence um, that I felt I needed to really push myself and keep learning. And, and honestly, just for inspiration to see what's possible, right? On Twitter, you see people doing absolutely incredible things, right? They have 100 doors, 500 doors are starting this company and buying this company. And it's just crazy. And I think some of them are probably embellishing, right? I don't think it's a hundred percent true. Um, but still, it's just a great thing to have in your sphere of influence. So that's my main reason. Also, you know, in terms of my content, right? I'm not claiming to be an expert. There's always someone commenting like, oh, you just bought your second house. Like, how are you a finance guru, right? I'm not a finance guru. I'm an average 27-year-old guy. I went into accounting. And I'm just on this journey. And I think that it's a helpful perspective for people to see someone who's transparent and sharing, you know, their screw ups as well as their successes and lessons learned along the way. Um, and, you know, I hope that some people can relate to my content and uh, hopefully it can inspire someone else to take their leap. Um, because, you know, we talked about earlier the capital, the capital required to get started, the stair step method, right? What the stair step method really means is like you need, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. I know you coined the term, but um, to me, what it means is you own property and use the equity of that ownership to kind of springboard yourself to be able to own more. Um, but when you think about that, it's contradictory, right? I'm just trying to buy real estate and you're telling me to own real estate, to buy real estate. Like that doesn't really make sense. Um, but I think, that if you get inspired enough, which is kind of, you know, a big part of the role Twitter is playing for me, then you start to research, how is it possible, right? How can I do this? And you see things like you can build when you don't have the money, right? You can put down three and a half percent if you find the right program. There's like tricks and, and ways to do it. And then all of a sudden, instead of needing, you know, the 150 grand that you thought you needed, so you figured you wouldn't even look into it for 10 years, you actually need 17, right? And you can get 17 just by saving a little more this year and maybe taking a small loan against your 401k. All of a sudden you're in the market for buying houses like today, right? Mm -hmm. So that mindset shift is really an unlock and um, and Twitter was part of that shift for me. Is there something that you know now being in the game for a few years now that you had no idea to even ask the question or even to think that thought? The answer is yes. There are many things like that. What, st what stands out? What's, what's something that you think is, is important to, to be aware of? Someone's just starting out. To someone who's just starting out, I mean, I would say this may be obvious. It is obvious. It, well, it's obvious for me. Um, but I think like having just a healthy degree of skepticism is important. And I, I feel like that's kind of going against my overall messaging today. 
right? Like I fully believe you should be optimistic in the way where, you know, I can do this, right? I can save the money. I can move a thousand miles. I can build a house, whatever. And just like, make sure you, you know, get it done and deliver on those things. Um, but at the same time, when you're analyzing the deals and you're, you know, I don't know if you're in Excel or how you're analyzing them. Uh, for me, it's Excel. Um, you want a healthy degree of skepticism, right? Like, let's assume you're trying to rent it. It's vacant for two months, right? Don't model in that you're able to refinance at a rate that's 2% lower after a year because that might not happen, right? That'd be great if it does. Uh, contractors, construction costs, add like 20 or 30%, add six months. You know, people, things happen. I, I think that's been a huge takeaway for me is there's all this unpredictable stuff. We're in a, a dispute with our seller. The contractor we thought was going to do our project just completely dropped us, doesn't want to deal with the scope of the project, right? So there's like unpredictable things happening. Uh, our first insurance policy canceled on us because of heightened fire risk in California now. Um, so I think like be optimistic, be confident that you can do it. But when you're running your analysis, be also skeptical because then if it works with the skeptical mindset where everything is 20 to 30% worse than you actually think it's going to be, you have an absolute home run of a deal. And then if things just happen how you think they're going to happen, you're already way in the green, let alone if things happen better, right? If our home that appreciated 29% while we were building, I'm not going to go around and say, you know, building Colorado Springs, 29% is guaranteed, right? Because that was a crazy anomaly. But if you don't try these things, that can't happen. And we modeled out, you know, 0% growth, 3% growth. We were comfortable with all that. So when 29 hit, it was just like, it was wild, um, but we would have been able to weather the storm either way. It just would have taken us a little longer to start these next projects because that equity is kind of what's fueling um, our ability to you know do all this construction work now. So just to kind of give an example, when you say the equity, um, what are you specifically doing to be able to tap into it? So we have a home equity line of credit, um, which I'm a huge advocate for um, 20 second cliff notes on home equity line of credits or HELOCs. Um, basically you can use them for anything, right? You're not restricted on the usage. Um, it's not a loan where you get all the proceeds on day one and you start to owe payments. It's a line of credits. It's a revolving, it, it functions like a credit card. So you can not draw from it for three years after opening it and you won't owe any payments because you have incurred no debt. Um, and for a lot of them, you can make interest-only payments for the first 10 years, which I don't do. Um, I like to pay down the debt, but you could, right, if you were in a stretch cash flow situation for a couple of years, paying interest-only, you know, allows you to obviously make smaller payments. Um, a lot of them have variable rates. I think there are fixed rate offerings too, but ours is variable. So it moves up and down prime, um, which is nice when you enter into it in a high rate environment, because in theory, that's going to come down over time, right? Obviously it could go up over time too. You never know, but um, it feels like rates are going to come down. We yeah, will see. Hopefully. Um, 
hopefully. So yeah, so those are HELOCs in a nutshell. Um, and you can usually get, I think, up to around 85% loan to value, which means that if your home is a million dollars and you owe 600,000 on your mortgage, right? 85 loan to value would be $850,000 in this example. So if you already have 600 of that on your mortgage, the difference 850 minus 600 or 250 grand, you could get an HELOC. And then it's just this blank check to use when you want on what you want. Um, and it gives you a lot of flexibility and power to go buy that next thing. And, and for you guys, you know, what are some of the things that you guys, um, you know, utilize that for on, on, on this process, down payment, closing costs, rehab, mix of, mix of all of it. For us, it's pretty much all, uh, construction and rehab. Um, so we, we waited to save up for the down payment here so we could make that in cash. Um, and then we want to just use our, uh, HELOC funds to fund these projects um, once they get going. So the, yeah, redoing the ADU, doing the addition, we're doing a kitchen remodel, right? Digging out that huge hill. There's a bunch of things. We're not going to be able to afford them all right now. Um, but I want to use all the HELOC funds um, and then probably a little financing as well. I'm a pretty big believer in, in leverage. Um, in general, I think I have a riskier, like a higher risk appetite for leverage than your average person. Um, but yeah, what, what why do you why about. do you think that is? Where, where does that come from? Um, confidence and ability to generate income, job or otherwise, or kind of what does where does that come from? That's part of it. Um, we have pretty stable, secure jobs here. Like that's part of the reason I went into accounting. Like when a company lays people off. Their accountants are some of the last people to get laid off because they need to issue financial statements and do like taxes to be in business. Um, it's a compliance function. It's like a must. So, so there's that. Um, my girlfriend has a pretty secure job as well. So I think that's part of it. And then also, you know, I post about leverage on Twitter and I'll show, you know, two examples, right? An example where, you know, Joe has a hundred thousand and Matt has a hundred thousand right? Joe goes and buys a house worth $100,000, all cash. Matt buys a house worth $500,000, 20% down payment, right? So Matt's leverage five to one in that scenario. If both houses go up 5% that year, 5% of a hundred grand is five grand, 5% of 500 grand is 25 grand. So your equity return on your cash is already times 500% in the first year. And then you compound that times, you know, 10 years. It just has an insane potential positive upside for you. So I'll lay out a scenario like this. And then everyone on Twitter says, well, what about the downside, right? What if it depreciates? Um, and to me, that doesn't matter. I know this is a controversial take. I'm sure people will get angry by this. But to me, that doesn't matter. Because if I don't have to sell and I can make the payments on the house, the valuation of the house, like one year after I buy it, has no impact to me. I'm just going to hold it, live in it, or I can rent it. And from a cash flow perspective, I know I'm okay. And then unless I'm being forced to sell, which, you know, 
again, feel pretty stable about our jobs. I don't think I will be, then I'll hold it. And then it's a market that I believe in. So even if it went down a little bit right after I bought it, it's going to come back up. Real estate, you know, it's thousands of years old as an asset class. It always goes up. So I feel pretty confident that that will turn back around and it ultimately won't matter. Um, now, I do acknowledge that we could get fired. We could need to sell. There's like this possible risk that everything goes wrong and I sell for a loss. Okay. And then if I'm leveraged, that loss is a little bit, you know, amplified. So I'm not saying there's no risk, but like I said, my risk appetite there is I think a little higher than the average person. Um, and for the reasons I mentioned, I'm willing to uh, take that on. So when you kind of map things out, um, you know, initially here um, or, or projecting things out, you have these projects that you're working on on the current property in San Diego, kind of where do you see things going down the road in terms of maybe the next opportunity? How many years out and what do you envision that maybe looking like? Um, so, I mean, I would say, um, <clears throat> I would say that the next opportunity for us, so um, this construction is going to take a while, while to afford, while to complete. Um, and that's mainly what I'm thinking about right now. I do wonder, so we have the addition, the remodel, the landscape, all that stuff can happen in the next year. The detached ADU is going to be pretty expensive, right? Because if it's 300 per square foot, we were talking about 740 square feet, right? That's like close to 250 grand. Um, so that's going to take a while to afford. Um, I'm thinking about maybe buying another property before doing that. Um, it really depends on, you know, how willing we are to keep living here. And, um, you know, with all these tenants on the property, I like to think that, you know, we could house hack and, um, you know, it's great financially, but then eventually we're going to have probably kids in the mix next five to 10 years. You know, do we want people that we're sharing walls with during that? I don't know. Um, so we will see. I do, part of me definitely wants to just own more of San Diego. Um, the, the ADU would be a cash flow play. Um, so owning more would be an equity play, right? And that debate is as old as time. Um, so yeah, I would say one of those two routes probably. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the biggest thing, right? Like when I'm talking to people about real estate, you know, the biggest limiting factor is, you know, well, I want to do X, Y, Z. Well, how much cash do we have available? Do how do we how do we plan for X, Y, Z if we have it or don't have it? And how do we make up the shortfall and timing? And that that's the hard part. And and you know, a question that I haven't asked, and I wish I would have asked earlier, kind of on that grand scale of saving. I mean, where do you where do you think, you know, strive 25, right? The 25 is hey, if you can build your life to be able to save 25% of your income, then you're gonna have options on how to invest. Um, as you guys have kind of gone through this journey. And now into a different market and your your mortgage payments higher with rates are higher and all this stuff. How has that changed along the way from a household? So you're asking kind of the evolution of like our income to saving ratio and how that's been changing. Mm -hmm. Um so <clears throat> I mean we've done we've been very fortunate with our our income and our, our W2 jobs. Um, we've, we've each job hopped a little bit and had some raises, had some promotions. Um, 
So we each make roughly like three times what we made coming out of school um, in, you know, five, five or six years. Um, so feel very lucky to, you know, be in that position. Um, and we have a relatively good discipline with spending. Obviously, everyone has their their things, right? Um, for us, we love to travel. I think it's a good way to spend money, right? No two people will agree on spending money the exact same way. But I think it opens up your horizons and it's a good experience. Um, we have two dogs. The dogs are always going to the vet. That's expensive. You know, we furnish the whole house in Colorado Springs. It's a pretty big house, right? Over 3,000 square feet. We furnish all that. And then when we were moving, we like had to sell a lot of the furniture because this house is like 700 square feet. Um, so took, you know, a hit on some of that furniture for sure. Um, so there's a few things like that. But I mean, ultimately, we eat at home and we don't, you know, buy all these frivolous clothes and we're pretty disciplined. I'd say I'm the main driver of that discipline. Um, because to me, like, since I'm so motivated for financial freedom, spending money on not financial freedom is essentially like selling years of my life, right? If I buy this leather jacket, that's $400. And I, you know, after you deal with taxes and whatever my income, my hourly income is, let's say it's like, I don't know what it is, but let's say it's 60 bucks um, an hour, right? Then you, that's, 360 that's like six and two-thirds hours um of my life that I just sold for a jacket right so that's like a day of working almost and I don't ultimately want to be working when I'm older so then like the jacket doesn't seem that good to me so I wear plain t-shirts I wear the same stuff I've worn for years so I think you know we try to be pretty frugal um and to your question about just the overall ratio so our payment in Colorado Springs was roughly like 10% of our gross income, um, our mortgage payment. So that was like a nice position to be in. Um, that said, when we got there, it was a new build. So new builds, you're at a dirt lot. You have to do all the landscaping. There's no blinds or curtains, right? You have to do all that. As I mentioned, we had to furnish it. So we were definitely spending that money. But if you you know whittle it down to just recurring expenses, um we were in a good spot to be able to save um now you know our payment's much higher we're in less good of a spot um which bugs me a little it, it's still less than a third of our gross income which depending on where you look on the internet you'll see a half a quarter a third you know net gross all these different things i haven't found like a unanimous rule but i think under a third of gross is decent um and once we're able to rent the ADU, the one that's already built, then it will be in like a pretty good spot. So that was kind of a big part of the strategy with buying this home. Um, obviously we thought we could rent it right away back then, um, but we just knew that we were gonna be able to cushion the payment pretty shortly after our purchase um, with that ADU rental. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, you, you talked about the flexibility uh, of someone maybe wanting to go take a, a year and go to, to New York or France or Europe or whatever. Um, and then trading time, you know, doing stuff right now, is it going to help you reach your goal of financial freedom or is it going to make that time longer? 
And so for you, you've placed this value on financial freedom and other people, you know, in general, either whether you're your age or not, other people don't place the same value or they don't think it's possible. And so they're not even thinking about it. And I think that's just something that, um, you know, that, that's the reason why we're here trying to do what we're doing. And the same thing with you on, on, on your platforms, you know, just trying to raise a little bit more awareness, share some examples and stories of what we're doing and hopefully it, it inspires somebody else to take that leap. And so, you know, if anybody has any questions or wants to reach out, where, where can they find you again on Twitter? Yeah. So they can find me at the cash flow guy. That's the cash flow underscore guy on Twitter. Um, yeah. I'm putting out content pretty much every day. Sometimes when I'm slammed, you know, I'll, I'll miss a day here and there. Um, but no, I'm pretty good about it. It's a lot of fun. So yeah, for anyone who's listening, would love to uh, engage there. Cool. Cool. I know we're running out of time here, but um, any other big goals for the year or goals in general? It doesn't have to be a big goal, just a goal. Uh, for the year, let's see, we've got like five months here. I'd really love to get these construction projects kicked off and have some meaningful progress made. Um, it's been difficult, you know, finding the right contractor and figuring out how to speak their language. Um, so I think that's the big one uh, coming up here. I want to hit profitability on my Amazon product. I think I'm close to that. Um, no real quantitative goals for Twitter. We'd just like to keep growing, um, keep meeting people. Yeah, I'd say that's, that's pretty it. much it for now. Love it. I mean, yeah, obviously we're going to keep uh, following you uh, in your channel and keep supporting and uh, can't wait to catch back up down the road and see some more progress on all the stuff you have going on. Um, but yeah, thank you so much, Cashflow Guy, and uh, appreciate your time and uh, we'll catch up soon. Really appreciate it, Joel. Thanks for having me. All right, take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Strive for 25 podcast. If you're ready to jumpstart your financial journey and take it to the next level, you may want to join our 30-day habit challenge, which you can find on our website, strivefor25.com, strive, F-O-R, the number 25.com. You can also follow us on YouTube and Instagram by searching strive for the number 25. And if you have any questions and want to reach out to us, you can also connect with us on our website. Thank you so much.